Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the final session, and we have someone very special and very important, uh, not only at the Cato Institute, but in constitutional jurisprudence in the United States. So our colleague, Roger Pilan, is the Vice President for Legal Affairs, but also the founding director of the Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. And in this process of founding that and establishing a team of people, of scholars who did deep work into constitutional law, he has had a remarkable impact at slowly but turning the direction of the ship of state uh, through strategic intervention in legal cases, a huge number of friend of the court briefs which are cited in Supreme Court decisions, which do have a serious impact. Uh, and it's really a great honor and pleasure to introduce Roger Pilon to speak on restoring constitutional government to the United States. Roger. Well, thank you, Tom, for that generous introduction. Problem is now I have to live up to it. Um, before I begin, uh, why don't we have a round of applause for the man who put this whole program together, Tom Palmer. I didn't know it was going to be standing. That cuts into my time. <laughs> um, Tom has asked me to um, speak uh, on the principles behind the Constitution, how they worked their way into the Constitution, uh, what became of those principles uh, over time, and what we're going to do about it. Now, that's a lot of ground to cover. I usually do it uh, when the each intern class comes along in about an hour. So he told me that I've got 20 minutes. That means that I'm going to have to speak every third word, and you're going to have to fill in the blanks, okay? And, um, but no, seriously, I will give you the, uh, the shortened version of it, but afterwards I understand we're going to have some drinking, uh, and I haven't had mine yet, so I'm going to be very anxious to get to that. And anything that I leave unaddressed, you can come speak to me then. I'd be glad to sp uh, spend some time up into the um, wee hours with you. Um, the issue before us is the state of the Constitution. And I want to start by making a fundamental point. There is all the difference in the world between modern constitutional law and the Constitution itself. I'm going to focus on the Constitution and show how it evolved eventually into modern constitutional law, again, not to be confused with the document itself. The great problem that we have in constitutional thought today is how we started out with a constitution that was meant to secure individual liberty through limited government and ended up with the Leviathan that we know and love so well today. I'll give you the short answer to that. We lived under it for more or less 150 years. I'll go into the details of that in just a minute. The Great Watershed was the progressive era which the New Deal court turned in, with which the New Deal Court 
turn the, um, the Constitution on its head, the ideas that came from the progressive era. And so that is the turning point that I'm going to drive toward and then show you how in the three important steps during the New Deal, we ended up with the Leviathan we have today. But the place to begin is not with the Constitution, but with the Declaration of Independence, because that's where the founders uh, put forth their philosophy of government and the relationship between the individual and government that they took with them 11 years later as framers and incorporated in the Constitution. So you cannot understand the Constitution unless you understand the theory behind it, and that is found in the Declaration. Um, in your first session in this program, Clark Neely went into some of that with the um, common law uh, tradition. The common law is the law that stands behind the Constitution. The Declaration, as you know, Jefferson started by placing us in the natural law tradition, the tradition that holds that there's a higher law of right and wrong from which to derive the positive law at any time and against which to criticize that law. There's nothing extraordinary about that. We all understand what it means. It's what the abolitionists appeal to uh, against slavery. It's what the suffragists appeal to when they sought the vote for women. It's what the civil rights movement appealed to in the face of Jim Crow. This idea of being a law of right and wrong. And Jefferson then turns to that in the famous passage in the Declaration that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Notice he spoke of these propositions as being truths. And what are they? You start with the premise of equality, all men are created equal, and you define that with reference to our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in this notion of a right to pursue happiness, you have a fundamental insight into the vision of the founders and framers. What makes you happy is not necessarily what makes me happy. There is subjectivity and values. Each of us has his own set of values. They may agree with those of his neighbor, they may not. But you have objective rights and subjective values, and the importance of drawing that distinction is this. We inherited two schools of epistemology from antiquity, namely skepticism and dogmatism. Skepticism holds that there are no moral truths, or if there are, you can't know them. Dogmatism holds that there are moral truths pertaining to every aspect of the human condition relating to what you can put into your bodies, the sexual practices you can engage in, the role of women in society, and so forth. Neither of these schools is attractive. Skepticism gives you no morality, nothing to get hold of. Dogmatism gives you no liberty. So if you can distinguish objective rights and subjective values, rights and values that come from different domains of morality, then you can chart a course between these two unattractive schools whereby each of us has an objective right to pursue happiness by his own subjective values, even though doing so may offend his neighbor, provided he doesn't violate the objective rights of his neighbor by taking something that belongs free and clear to him, his life, his liberty, or his estates. And there you have the first step in building the theory of rights, all of which are reducible to property, as John Locke put it, lives, liberties, and estates. And obviously, we don't live in splendid isolation in Blackacre or Whiteacre. We come together, and so we come to the second great font of rights, namely promise or contract. And to, through these two fundamental principles, promise, excuse me, a property on one hand, and 
contract on the other, you can create the whole of what we call civilization or civil society. Now, <clears throat> the problem that you're now faced with, and thus far I've talked about only that first part of the famous passage in the Declaration, namely the state of nature moral order. Jefferson at this point has said nothing about government because he wants to set forth the moral order first. Government comes second to secure that order, and you see it in his words, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So notice, government is twice limited. It's limited by its ends to secure our rights and by its means which must be consented to. And there you have your theory of legitimate government insofar as you can have legitimate government. Namely, the function of government is to secure our reason-based rights the do, it does it through means which must be consented to. But the consent argument has well-known objections. Nobody really does consent uh, in a meaningful sense. And so what you emerge with when you think about the problem of justifying government as such is the idea that it is and there is an air of illegitimacy that surrounds government. It is, as George Washington said, a forced association. It is not reason, it is not eloquence, it is force. And once you recognize that, and re then it will occur to you to do as little as possible through government where it be, must be done in violation of the rights who don't want to have it done through government, and as much as possible in the private sector where it can be done voluntarily and therefore in violation of the rights of no one. So you want to think about this in the following sense. Imagine a continuum. Down here is anarchism, up here is totalitarianism. When you are down here at anarchism, no one can be heard to complain because everybody in, in, is his own uh, self-enforcement agency. But there are problems with that. As Locke said, life in the state of nature uh, has inconveniences. We may disagree about what our rights are, what rights we have to secure our rights, and so forth. Locke put, uh, uh, Hobbes put it succinctly, life in the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So it would behoove us to come out of the state of of nature and to start thinking about securing our rights through something called government uh, insofar as that is appropriate to do so. But as you work your way up, you can have certain public goods like rule of law, like clean air and water, like uh, limited infrastructure and so forth. But the further you work your way up this continuum, the more you're going to have people dropping off, say, wait a minute, I don't want my health care provided for government. I don't want my I don't want to educate my children through government schools and so on. You get all the way up here and you get, do you want your radio provided through government agencies, all things considered? Think about that. This is the kind of thing that as you work your way up, you find less and less agreement about what government should be doing. And that is the central problem that we're faced with today. We're a deeply divided uh, country with people arguing mainly about what is the proper function of government. Now, I've suggested that there is this air of illegitimacy that surrounds government as such because the person who doesn't want to come out of the state of nature and enter into civil society, you're actually going to force him to do so. Still, you can talk about different degrees of legitimacy with respect to categories of government powers. The most legitimate power is the police power, the power to secure our rights. It's the power that Locke said was the executive power each of us enjoys in the state of nature. 
The only one who can be heard to complain is the person who would rather do it himself. And the reason it's legitimate is because each of us had that power in the state of nature, which we yielded up to government in the original position, or so the social contract theory would have us believe. And there is something to be said for that approach to legitimacy. The second great power of government is the eminent domain power, the power to condemn private property for public use provided just compensation is paid. This is less legitimate. Why? Because none of us would have such a power in the state of nature. I couldn't condemn your property no matter how worthy the use was that I put it to. And even if I did give you just compensation, it would be a forced association. So what's the rationale for it? Well, we gave it to government in the original position, the Fifth Amendment's takings clause. And secondly, as economists say, it's Pareto superior. At least one person is made better off. No one is made worse off. The person made better off is the, is the people, as, as evidenced by their willingness to pay the person, not made worse off is the person who gets just compensation. But of course, today, rarely does the owner get just compensation. Just compensation would be that amount that would leave him indifferent as to whether he keeps the property or gets the compensation. Today, you get market value. The fact that that's not just is indicated by the fact that you don't have your property on the market. That tells you that it's more valuable to you than it is on the market. Now, the third great power of government is the redistributive power, and it takes two forms, material and, and um, material and, um, uh, and, and uh, regulatory. Uh, material redistribution through the taxing power, taking from A and giving to B. Regulatory redistribution is prohibiting A from doing what he has a right to do or requiring him to do what he has a right not to do for the benefit of B. Here we have, in this third category of powers, most of what government does most of the time today, taking from A and giving to B, either through taxing or through regulation. And it is utterly illegitimate. Nobody would have that in the state of nature, and we don't have anything but majoritarian consent for it. At best, normally what we would have is uh, special interest uh, justification or pr pressure for it through the standard uh, public choice economics. Okay, now we have our theory of legitimacy in at least outline form, and the picture that emerges from the declaration is one in which each of us is free to pursue happiness, provided he respects the equal rights of others, and government is there to secure those rights and do the few other things that we may have authorized it to do. And that's what, we, what Madison took with him when 11 years later the framers got together in Philadelphia again to draft the Constitution. And you see in the preamble they were right back in state of nature just as they were in the Declaration. We the people for the purposes listed do ordain and establish this Constitution. Notice all power starts with the people. They give government whatever power it has. The government does not give us our rights. We already have our rights, our natural rights. Now you turn to the body of the Constitution itself and you will see how Madison and the other framers went about providing for a government that was strong enough to do the things that we wanted it to do, yet not so powerful and extensive as to violate our rights in the process. And he did it in the number of ways that I'm gonna just tick off for you. First of all, the division of powers between the federal and state governments with most power left with the states, in particular the police power. That's where most of our rights are protected, under state law, under the common law that Clark discussed in the first session. 
Secondly, the separation of powers between the three branches, each branch defined functionally. Uh, the provision for a unitary executive with the power to veto legislation and the power of Congress to override that. The provision for an independent judiciary to check the political branches and later the states, a novel institution for its day with the power of judicial uh, uh, review. Uh, the provision for periodic elections to fill the offices set forth in the document. But the main restraint on overweening government, remember they had just fought a revolution to rid themselves of overweening government, the main restraint took the name of the doctrine of enumerated powers, and I can state it no more simply than this. If you want to limit power, don't give it in the first place. You see that document, that doctrine, spelled out in the very first sentence of the Constitution. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power was herein granted. Look at Article 1, Section 8, and you will see that Congress has only 18 powers. Count them, just 18 powers. And then you look at the last documentary evidence from the founding period, the Tenth Amendment, and you'll see this doctrine spelled out expressly. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. And then you look at the Ninth Amendment and you see the obverse of the Tenth. The Tenth spoke of, spoke of powers, the Ninth speaks of rights. The history that led up to the Ninth Amendment, which reads, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The history that led up to it tells you what it was all about. During the ratification debates, it became clear that the Constitution would not be ratified unless a Bill of Rights were added. But there were objections to adding a Bill of Rights. They came from people like Hamilton and Wilson, and they were very serious objections. They said that a Bill of Rights was unnecessary and it was dangerous. Unnecessary because why declare that there is freedom of speech, for example, when no power is given with which to violate uh, one's speech? Notice they were invoking the doctrine of enumerated powers. Moreover, they said it would be dangerous. Why? Because you can't enumerate all of our rights, but the failure to enumerate all members of a category will be construed by ordinary principles of legal reasoning as meaning only those particulars that were enumerated are meant to be protected in contradistinction from those that are not. So it was to address that problem that they wrote the Ninth Amendment, which reads again, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Notice, retained by the people. You can't retain what you don't first have to be retained. The natural rights is what they were speaking of there. So now the picture that emerges from the Constitution is the same one that emerged from the Declaration. Each of us is free to pursue happiness by his own lights as he works his way through life, provided he respects the equal rights of others and that government is there to secure those rights to do and to do the fewer the things that we have authorized it to do. And we lived under that idea for roughly 150 years. It wasn't perfect for, for sure. There was the oblique recognition of slavery, our cardinal sin. The framers knew the institution was inconsistent with their founding principle. They hoped it, was, it would wither away in time. It didn't. It took a civil war to end slavery and the passage of the Civil War Amendments, which provided for the first time federal remedies against state violations of our rights. 
Unfortunately, five years after the 14th Amendment was ratified in the infamous slaughterhouse cases coming from a fetid stew of corruption in the city of New Orleans, uh, the uh, court, uh, I, I, that may be an unpleasant uh, 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 comment uh, for some of you who come from this uh, fetid stew of corruption. <laughs> I, things haven't changed all that much, I realize. Um, but but um, uh, in, in 1873, uh, in a bitter, bitterly divided 5-4 decision, the court eviscerated the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which was meant to be the principal font of substantive rights under the document. And the courts have done an uneven job ever since in interpreting the 14th Amendment. I think Clark, in his last pro, uh, session, talked about some of that. And I'll say a little bit more about it in just a few minutes as well. Now we come to the great watershed, the progressive era. At the end of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century, the progressives were coming from the elite schools of the Northeast. Uh, they uh, were uh, looking to uh, Europe for, for models of, of good governance. Uh, they were enamored by, the, uh, by science, especially the emerging social sciences. They were social engineers. They had all kinds of uh, plans for improving mankind and society with it. And uh, they were borrowing, as I said, from the ideas Bismarck's social security scheme in Germany. In England, uh, the emergence of utilitarianism, uh, which had replaced natural rights theory in ethics. Uh, and you, what they tried to do for, during the early decades of the 20th century was institute a vast uh, array of, of statutory programs uh, this was a, an approach to law which was fundamentally different from the founders' approach. In fact, they rejected uh, out of hand the, fun, the limited government ideas of the founders and the Constitution in particular. The idea was not to have law as, as discerned uh, as principle through, um, uh, through judges, but rather to have law made as policy through legislators. It was to be law to accomplish various social ends. Uh, they were drawing from, uh, for example, they wanted uh, the welfare programs uh, not to supplement private charity, but to crowd out private charity so that it could be uh, carried out by professional school, uh, trained at the Columbia School of Social Work. Um, and, and we see example after example where, where they were trying to, in the Hayekian sense, uh, engage in the social engineering that reflected the hubris that Hayek was so clear in, in condemning. Um, and the, I'll give you just one example of, the, of utilitarian as it is at work, and that would be in the 1927 decision that the Supreme uh, Court handed down called Buck v. Bell, which was a challenge to a Virginia statute that authorized the sterilization of people thought to be of insufficient intelligence. It was all part of the modern eugenics movement, which was championed by such luminaries of the day as the president of Stanford University, the president of, um, of um, 
uh, Planned Parenthood and others, the idea was, how are you going to improve the gene pool if you allow those people to procreate? Well, it went to the Supreme Court and the sainted Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great uh, progressive from Cambridge, Massachusetts, in an opinion of no more than five paragraphs, upheld the statute uh, and ended his opinion in the ringing words, three generations of imbeciles are enough. There followed some 70,000 sterilizations in this country. Country. And it was all justified on this kind of consequentialist, utilitarian uh, rationale, the greatest good for the greatest number. Indeed, if you could do medical experiments on a few people and solve some dreaded diseases, why not do it? Because after all, that would presumably give us money, some utilitarian calculus, the greatest good for the greatest number. So this was the kind of mindset that was seeping in. However, the courts to a substantial extent, stood athwart this effort, not entirely by any means, but you, uh, you, you saw the court in many cases saying, no, this is either at the federal level, there's no power to do this, whether it's federal or state, there are rights against doing this. Things came to a head, however, during the New Deal after Roosevelt was elected. And after the court, in the, Roosevelt's first term, found uh, a number of his programs to be unconstitutional. Well, after the landslide election of 1936, when all but two states went for Roosevelt and the House was four to one Democratic, the, um, uh, Roosevelt in January of 37 unveiled his infamous court packing scheme, his threat to pack the court with six new members. There was uproar in the country, not even Congress would go along with it. Nevertheless, the court got the message. There was the famous switch in time that saved nine, and it began rewriting the Constitution without benefit of constitutional amendment. And it did it in three main steps, and here they are. First of all, it eviscerated the, the, uh, the um, doctrine of enumerated powers, the very foundation of the Constitution in 1937. In 1938, it gave us a bifurcated theory of rights and a bifurcated theory of judicial review. And in 1943, it jettisoned the non-delegation doctrine. Let me take those just a little more slowly. In 1937, when it eviscerated the doctrine of enumerated powers, it turned to two clauses in the Constitution the General Welfare Clause and the Commerce Clause. With respect to the General Welfare Clause, in 1936, in a case called United States v. Butler, the court revisited a debate that had taken place early in our history between Hamilton on one side and uh, Jefferson, Madison, and virtually everyone else on the other side. Hamilton stood for the idea that there was an independent power to tax and spend for the general welfare. That couldn't possibly be right, said Madison and the others, because if that were the case, then any time Congress wanted to do something that was not authorized to it because no power had been given to it with which to do it, it could simply say that it was taxing and spending for the general welfare and make an end run around the doctrine of enumerated powers. Indeed, they continued, what was the point of having enumerated Congress's other powers since they could do anything they wanted under this sole power? Well, in 1936, in the Butler case, the court came down on Hamilton's side, but in dicta, not the holding of the case, but peripheral language. A year later, however, in the Helvering case, the Social Security case, the court elevated the dicta to the holding of the case, so now the floodgates were open to Congress being able to tax and spend for the general welfare. But the court said it has to be for the general welfare, 
It then added, but we're not going to police that. We're going to leave it to Congress to police itself. Well, we know how that's worked out. Now, the Commerce Clause was also uh, turned on its head in 1937. There, we have a uh, situation under the Articles of Confederation where states were erecting tariffs and other measures for the protection of local merchants and manufacturers against competition from out-of-state merchants and manufacturers, the standard public choice dynamic. And it was leading to the breakdown of the free flow of goods and services among the states. So the framers gave Congress the power to regulate or make regular commerce among the states. Think of how gravity makes regular the motions of the planets. This is the mindset in, during the uh, Enlightenment that they were thinking of, of the word regulate. And indeed, in the first great commerce clause case, Gibbons v. Ogden's in, in 1825, the court indeed ruled it exactly that way. It was a challenge to a, a New York State statute that gave a monopoly for plying the trade, the ferry trade between New Jersey and New York, and it therefore kept others out of the trade. Therefore, the court found it unconstitutional. Others had a right to enter to that trade. The uh, court in 1937 came down in the Jones and Laughlin case with saying that Congress had a power to regulate anything that affected interstate commerce. Well, there's nothing that does not at some level affect interstate commerce, and so now the floodgates were open to the modern regulatory state. But you could still invoke your rights. So to address that little problem, in 1938, the court bifurcated the Bill of Rights and gave us a bifurcated theory of judicial review. If courts, or if the statute implicated a fundamental right like speech, voting, later on certain uh, personal uh, liberties, the court would apply strict scrutiny, the government would have to have a compelling interest, its means would have to be narrowly tailored, in all likelihood the statute would be found unconstitutional. By contrast, if a law implicated a non-fundamental right, like property rights, contract rights, the rights we exercise in ordinary commercial relations, why then the court would apply the, the rational basis test, which reads as follows. If there is some reason for the statute, if you can imagine, if you can conceive of a reason that's good enough to let it sail right through. Well, of course, you can always conceive of a reason for a statute, and therefore, we now had the floodgates open to the modern regulatory and redistributive state. Now, we get the last step in 1943, the jettisoning of the doctrine, of, of, of the, um, the non-delegation doctrine. This is a doctrine that comes from the very first word of the Constitution. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. Not some, all. Congress was passing ever more legislation and it could not do all the minutia that was necessary to spell out the legislation. So it began delegating ever more of its legislative power to the agencies that it was creating, some 450 that exist in, the, uh, in Washington today, the SEC, the FCC, the FDA, and on and on I could go. That's where most of our law is written today, not in Congress. Congress writes a wonderful mom and pop and apple pie law and then sends it off to the agencies saying, now you go write the rules under it. That's where the law is written today. And this was, in other words, the delegation of the non, or the jettisoning of the non-delegation doctrine. And it is the source of the modern executive state. Therefore, we think today 
that the president has the power to do almost anything, and regrettably, there's a great deal of truth to that, given the way the court has allowed the Congress to delegate so much power to the executive branch. The period of the New Deal and the few uh, years thereafter was essentially a period of judicial restraint. The court deferring to the political branches. But the court got its second wind in the 50s and into the 60s and 70s, and in many cases, not a moment too soon. In civil rights areas, for example, in some cases of criminal uh, uh, procedure uh, and other such areas. But there were other areas where it was inventing rights out of whole cloth. And that created a conservative backlash by people like Alexander Bickle at Yale, uh, Robert Bork, Antonin Scalia, and other conservatives. And so what you had was two schools of thought that were emerging in the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, both of them wrong. The uh, both made their peace with the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers. Liberals because they liked the government to have all this power. Conservatives because they thought it was a lost cause. Indeed, I had Antonin Scalia over for lunch on, uh, at Cato in 1993. And, uh, well, the first thing he said when he, we sat down, oh, where's the wine? I said, Nino, Nino, this is lunch. It was so, he said. And so we had to send an intern out to get a bottle of wine. Um, but I digress. The... Um, uh, the, 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 at one point I said, Nino, when are you ever going to revive the doctrine of enumerated powers? Oh, Roger, we lost that battle a long time ago, he said. So that was the conservatives' approach to the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers. Where they differed was on the right side. Whereas the, the conservatives, fearing judicial activism, called on the court to enforce only those rights that were fairly clearly in the Constitution, ignoring the Ninth Amendment, ignoring the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, and so forth. By contrast, the, the liberals were finding rights episodically, uh, ignoring rights that were plainly there, like property or contract and economic liberties, while inventing rights out of whole cloth in other areas. And so it opened the door for a third school of thought to come along. Bernie Segan at the, out at the University of San Diego, and when I was doing my graduate work at the University of Chicago. We were in the early stages of that, in the early and, and mid-70s. Richard Epstein joined us shortly thereafter. A decade later, Randy Barnett joined on the constitutional side. And then in 89, January of 89, we established the Center for Constitutional Studies at Cato. And together, all of us have been pushing this third school of thought that, as Tom said, has literally changed the terms of the debate in constitutional jurisprudence today. The conservatives in particular are far less likely to be inclined to engage in judicial uh, restraint than they were um, a few decades ago. Indeed, it is the liberals who are condemning the conservatives on the court for their judicial activism, but we are still a long way from where we need to go. So now let me get to the last point, and I'll state this very, very quickly, because there isn't a lot to be said about it, namely, how do we get from here to there? How do we start reviving this? And the answer, it seems to me, at bottom is this. We got to this point of affairs by a fundamental shift in the climate of ideas that came about through the progressive era and was instituted by the New Deal court. We have got to start changing the climate of ideas, which is what programs like this and the Cato and the Institute for Justice and the Pacific Legal Foundation and other organizations around the country are engaged in. 
That is to say, you need to change the climate of ideas such that people stop demanding things from government and ask for uh, liberty from government rather than goods and services from government. The problem that we've gotten ourselves into as a result of this constitutional uh, inversion is that more and more people are demanding goods and services from government that they are unwilling to pay for. As a result, we have a debt of 20 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars today, and growing, and an unfunded liability vastly beyond that, we are imposing on our children and grandchildren the costs of our current consumption. Where is the morality in this? The framers would be turning in their graves if they saw that. Don't forget, they faced massive debt after the Revolutionary War. They created a constitution to address that problem and to restrain the government in other respects. That is what we have to move toward. We have to move toward changing it, and the place to start, it seems to me, is going backwards from where we have most ended. The administrative law side that I talked about last, with the demise of or with the jettisoning of the doctrine of enumerated powers, has given the courts a, do a, a doctrine of deference. There are three kinds of deference that the courts engage in, namely uh, Chevron deference, Skidmore deference, and our deference, in which they simply allow the agencies to write and rewrite laws without any serious oversight by the courts. In recent years, the conservatives on the court have started to question that approach, and we need to encourage them to do, so, to do that. We at Cato are going to be moving more in that direction to, to keep that debate going. Eventually, of course, we're going to have to do what we have started to do already on the right side. There were three decisions that came down in 1995, the Lopez decision in, 19, in 2000, the Morrison decision, and the Commerce Clause part of the healthcare, original, uh, the individual mandate, all relating to saying that the Commerce Clause uh, cannot be used for these purposes. But this is only chipping away at the edges. So the powers part is going to be the toughest nut to crack because we cannot depend on the courts to overturn all the entitlements. That is going to have to be done through the political branches. But as I said, at bottom, it's the climate of ideas that we need to do, need to address. And that's why it's so important that all of you are here so that when you go back, you can tell your friends and neighbors, if they're willing to listen, what it is that makes them wrong when they walk into the voting booth and vote for more of those goods and services. Because of course they are free goods and services aren't they? Well, let me stop right there and uh, invite a few questions. Can I take a few questions, Tom? Oh, good. All right. Good. Let's have a few. All right. Yes. Okay. And if you want to identify yourself when the mic gets to you, do I see a hand? Right here. I'm curious as to what you think produced the idea of judicial restraint as such a centerpiece of conservative thinking. I mean, I expect Roe v. Wade yes. was, was it, but were there others that oh, yes. sort of led to that conclusion? That's right. In fact, I'm glad you asked that question because it will give me a chance to say something that I wanted to say and, and forgot. Um, 
it was it wasn't just Roe v. Wade, but that was that's the standout one. But before that, um, the uh, Griswold v. Connecticut, the the, the um, statute of Connecticut that prohibited the sale and use of contraceptives. Now there is a perfect example, not because they saw that as well. Why isn't this just simply part of the police power of the states to do this in the name of morals? Okay. The problem there is this. They they were on the wrong side to start with, but there wasn't a proper jurisprudence about it. When you take cases like Lochner v. New York in 1905, which was the New York State statute that limited the hours that bakers could work, and the court found that the statute was unconstitutional as a violation of freedom of contract, all the way up to, uh, to, uh, to um, Lawrence v. Texas, the, the, the homosexual sodomy case in 2002 or three, I can't remember which. Um, in any event, there is a series of cases where the court found unenumerated rights, as it did in Griswold. The problem that the conservatives had was that they said, you know, this is an invitation for chicanery on the part of the court. And there was some truth to that. But the liberals had no theory of the matter. The best the court has done for a theory of the matter comes from a case called Glucksburg in 1997, in which Rehnquist set forth this, what he called our substantive due process theory. Namely, that when we are faced with a challenge to an unenumerated right, we need to know, first of all, if the right is deeply rooted in our nation's history, and secondly, whether it is carefully described. Well, he had that backwards because you can't determine if it's deeply rooted unless you first carefully described it. But moreover, even if it is deeply rooted, the likelihood is then it's probably already protected and if it isn't, it isn't likely to be protected. The way that the court should go about this is the way that surprisingly Justice Kennedy went about it in Lawrence v. Texas. There is a at least procedural presumption on the favor and the part of the government. In other words, if nobody challenges a statute, then by definition it survives, right? Someone comes along and challenges it. All right, now the presumption shifts and the burden is upon the government to justify it. Well, what can the government say in a case like Griswold? Who's, this was under the state police power which is designed mainly to secure our rights. Whose rights are violated by me selling you contraceptives or you using them? Whose rights are violated by that? Whose rights are violated if I send my child to a non-government school? That was a 1925 case uh, called Pierce v. Society of Sisters. Whose rights are violated if Mr. Lawrence and his partner engage in sexual practices uh, in the privacy of their own home? All of these statutes were pressed under morals. And so the court has gone about this whole jurisprudence wrongly. All this they have to ask is, what's the rationale, Mr. Government, for this statute? And if the most the government can say, well, it's morals, that's not going to work because it means that the morals of one part of the community are being used to shut down the morals of another part of the community. And in a live and let live world, you can't have that because it's tyranny of the majority. When the minority is doing nothing that takes anything free and clear from anybody else. That's the way it should be done 
rather than the way the conservatives looked at it as this is perfectly legitimate legislation for morals. Yes. Yes, uh, it seems like the Fed, the creation of the Fed and Woodrow Wilson get a little bit of a pass this weekend. I think that's kind of where things really started to go off the rails. But uh, in addition to that, if you don't mind, you know, I sh this is going to be an impossible question to answer, but is there, uh, my, my, my friends on the left are going so far left. Is there an elevator, as we say in the in Hollywood, is there an elevator pitch to give them to at least get them to start to turn around and look at all they're giving up by the things they vote for and the things they hold dear. You're talking about the Fed, right? Yeah, the Fed. Uh, well, as I gave a long answer to that question. I'm gonna give a short answer to this one. I don't know much about the issues surrounding the Fed. We did put, put a book out by Richard Timberlake, who is, I think, well into his 90s now, a few years ago. I edited it, at least the legal part, uh, some of it but the economics part was beyond me. Uh, I'm a philosopher and a lawyer, not an economist. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm not qualified to answer that question. Sorry. You're going to have to ask someone who's... who's um, Marcus should have been able to answer that one. He's an economist. Okay. Right here. Yes. I just wanted to uh, thank you for coming in and speaking for us. Um, uh, <clears throat> the title of your speech was restoring the American constitutional order. And um, it reminded me of uh, a Lysander Spooner quote about that um, the Constitution is one thing or, or the other, um, but one thing is for certain is that it either authorized the government that we've had or has been um, powerless to prevent it. So my question is, um, what can we do as uh, individuals to prevent um, you know, the Le Leviathan that you mentioned earlier on and, um, you know, bring back liberty in America? Well, well, you can do what I said, but I don't know what beyond that. Um, if the, 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 the root of the problem today is ed education, and it starts at preschool, education together with the culture. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's not one of individual liberty and individual responsibility. It's it, freighted with collectivism of a thousand and one different varieties. Uh, and it was no better captured by, than by President Obama with his oft-used phrase, we're all in this together. To which many of us said, Mr. Obama, I don't want to be in the, the healthcare I don't want to be in health, your healthcare system with you. I'd rather do it myself in the private sector. But that is, there are too many Americans today who really do believe that we are all in this together. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's socialism, to put it in a simple word. Uh, Yo, know, you didn't build a whole, that was even worse. Yes. Yeah. Do we take one more question? Yes, right over here. I think I'd like to uh, have you address the moral issue regarding it's possible to give these goods and services to all these people uh, when we uh, embark on this uh, track of debt, but yet we're borrowing from our, you said, children and grandchildren 
perhaps it's tens of generations into the future where we are spending on an unsustainable level and you said also that it's immoral. Perhaps that's the way that we can address this is to, uh, to um, attack the morality of what we're doing uh, to our progeny. Yes, well, we do that. Um, and all you need to do is look at Venezuela if you want a textbook example of what happens when you go down this road uh, because it happened so relatively quickly in the great uh, course of history uh, to see how people are literally starving in the streets in Venezuela uh, and fleeing as well. Um, and as I said, when you're piling up now $20 trillion of debt, and it's going to be more because we are now coming with a baby boom generation in the receive, recipients of um, not only Social Security but even more Medicaid, uh, Medicaid and Medicare, uh, then um, we, we really have to come to grips with it, but nobody wants to address it. And, um, well, yes, morality is the issue, but it's, we don't, we're not encouraged that if we watch late night comedy shows, are we? So, I don't watch them anymore. <laughs> I like Johnny Carson, but that, that, that marks me as sort of old. <laughs>